and I'm going to be your um, 10 o'clock teacher this morning. Welcome to Beth Adonai, the house of the Lord, and um, um, our wonderful Shabbat service that we're going to have today. So let's begin as we always should with a prayer. Alvinu Malkenu, our Father, our King, our Creator. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us, for allowing us to be here safely, for allowing us to get everything working this morning so that we can, can do your work this day. Father, thank you for um, blessings that you bestowed upon each of us this week and lessons that you bestowed upon each of us this week. Thank you for your creation, Father. Thank you for everything around us that we get to enjoy every day. Be with us this morning as we study your word. Open our hearts and our minds that we would be touched by your wisdom. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. So, um, in spirit, I guess, of James's proclamation in Acts that the, um, the Torah is studied each and every Shabbat in the synagogue, when I pick teachings, I, 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 um, I kind of stick to the Torah. And um, this week's Torah portion is called Terumah. Terumah is uh, translated as heave offering in, um, in several of the uh, different English translations. It is the story of the, um, the instructions given to Moses for the building of the tabernacle. So we're going to learn a lot about the, uh, the tabernacle this morning. Um, I, should, I should always begin with thanking the resources I use because I guess it's plagiarism to use things verbatim sometimes without it, give, giving them credit. In fact, it is plagiarism. So um, I do a lot, I did a lot this week in this week's Torah study with uh, FFOZ's Torah clubs and with the Art Scroll Humash mainly. So, um, Teremah is from Exodus 25.1 through 27.19. Uh, the half Torah is actually from uh, 1 Kings, and it's the story of Solomon and him building the temple, so the first temple. As the half Torahs and the Brit Hadashahs always relate to the Torah portion. With the exception of the instant of the golden calf, the rest of the book of Exodus is devoted to preparations for and construction of the what you call the Mishkan, which is, not, which is literally the dwelling place or the tabernacle. The tabernacle was intended to be the central rallying point for the nation of Israel. It's ringed by the tribes and topped by the cloud of God's presence and the place to which every Jew would go with offerings through which he hoped to elevate himself spiritually. The function of the tabernacle in the wilderness was carried forward by the temple in Jerusalem. Throughout the long and bitter exile, which alternates between a grinding oppression and spiritually debilitating affluence, actually affluence, the centrality of God's presence is represented by the miniature sanctuaries of synagogues and study halls today, because there is no temple. For it is in them and through them 
the Jews hark back to the sounds of Sinai and the radiance of the temple. Let me go to my next slide here. This thing works. There we go. So here's a couple of pictures of the, um, of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, its vessels, and its priestly garments were made from the 13 raw materials that are listed in Exodus 25, 1 through 7, with only two exceptions. There were three separate portions of silver, two of which were ordered, basically. They were a half-shekel portion from which every Jew was to make the sockets of the tabernacle's planks, and an annual half-shekel portion that went in to purchase the communal offerings for the tabernacle service. The optional gifts of silver were used to make the vessels in the tabernacle. Everything else that was given to the tabernacle was given voluntarily. So anxious were the people to give to this wonderful project that the people that were handling the work of the tabernacle had to tell Moshe to tell them to stop. They're giving us too much. The end of Exodus 24 describes how the glory of the Lord rested atop Mount Sinai as a consuming fire for six days. On the seventh day, Moses ascended the mountain and stepped into the cloud. No sooner did Moses enter into the cloud and into the presence of the Lord than the divine voice instructed him to raise a contribution for the construction of a holy place. The word translated as contribution is terumah. Terumah is a word with no real English equivalent, as so many Hebrew words have no real English equivalent. In the Torah, terumah refers to certain type of offerings that are dedicated to the temple, like a tithe of the first fruits. But here, in Exodus 25, the contribution is for the building of a holy place. This Torah reading is occupied with instructions for the building of the tabernacle and its furnishings. The Almighty did not impose Teramah as a tax, like an obligation to tithe. He wanted the sanctuary to be built only from willing contributions of the children of Israel. When seeking a place to dwell, the Lord seeks after the willing heart. In Exodus 25.2, Moses ascended into the presence of God. Imagine finding a hill on top of which God was waiting. Metaphorically, such a hill does exist. It is the hill of generosity. The more we give of ourselves and our resources to God's work, the higher we climb and the closer we draw toward him. As we align our priorities and our energies with God, we experience spiritual ascent. Rashi, Rashi I'm sorry, explains the word Terumah implies separating a portion of one's resources for a higher purpose. The implication is, is that one who gives a gift of Terumah to the Lord is himself uplifted. By giving our resources to God, we spiritually elevate ourselves. There are givers and there are takers. In Exodus 25.2, the Torah literally says that the sons of Israel were to take a contribution for God. This seems like a contradiction. 
A person making a donation does not take, he gives. By contributing to God's work, a person is actually receiving more than he's given. Though he gives from his own material resources, he receives return in enormous spiritual benefit. Therefore, one who gives to the work of the Lord is actually taking from the blessing of God. When one gives to the kingdom of heaven, his contribution is like an investment that will reap eternal reward for him. We hear rabbi all the time um, each week when he does the prayer for the, before the offering, talk about a cheerful giver. As he, God loves a cheerful giver. A true giver is not motivated to simply give because he anticipates reaping a prosperous return on his investment. A generous person gives to the work of the kingdom because his heart desires to give. He loves God and wants to do everything he can to further the work of God on earth. A true giver wants to honor his father by giving back from the resources bestowed upon him by God. The true giver does not think of it as his money and his resources, but he regards everything as belonging to the Lord. God does love a cheerful giver, and that's in uh, 2 Corinthians 9-7 is where Rabbi gets that from. Precious metals of gold, silver, and bronze represents giving money slash resources to the house of the Lord, befit to the palace of a king. Acacia wood was resinous and had resistance to rot and decay. The Septuagint translated, translated it as imperishable wood. This represented the immortal and imperishable nature of God's sanctuary. Decay, fermentation, corruption, all are banned from the tabernacle because they represent death. Unlike um, other religions, um, you don't find dead bodies in a synagogue. Um, bodies are, are, are buried right away after they're, they're burned and we have celebrations of life. But death is, is uh, God is a God of life. And that's just a temporary thing. We, 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 are, we come back to life, or we, we, we enter into a different life because we enter into a different place in eternal life. The light that burns from the pure olive oil in the menorah in the presence of God symbolizes divine revelation and spiritual illumination. The light of the menorah represented the heavenly light that emanates from the presence of God into the eternal sanctuary above. Fragrant spices were used to make the anointing oil and the incense. Moses used the oil for anointing and consecrating the sacred vessels and the priesthood. According to Jewish legend, the prophets used the same anointing oil to anoint all the kings of Israel, and that same oil would one day be used to anoint King Messiah. The precious stones on the priestly garments relate to the precious stones of the Messianic Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem of the world to come. The, the Torah spends 12 chapters in all, essentially the last quarter of the book of Exodus, 
discussing the construction of the tabernacle and priestly items. By way of contrast, the creation of the universe received only one short chapter. The Torah does not waste words. If the Lord placed so much emphasis on building the tabernacle, then we should pay careful attention to what he's telling us. There's another picture of the tabernacle. And uh, you can see all the tents arranged around it there. And um, here's a picture of the furnishings. The Lord told Moses to collect a contribution of precious metals from the Israelites for use in constructing a holy place. These are some of the names of, uh, of the holy place. Sanctuary, the Hebrew word for sanctuary is mikdash. The word translated in Exodus 25.8 as sanctuary is the Hebrew word mikdash. It means holy place. Mikdash is based on the common biblical word kadosh, which is holy. Holiness is a state of separation from the ordinary. Another term for the uh, tabernacle is Mishkan. And Mishkan is um, God told Israel to build a holy place so he could dwell among them in this Mishkan, which is tabernacle. And another word for it is uh, Ohel Moed, which is tent of meeting. The Torah often calls the tabernacle the tent of meeting. Like a tent, the tabernacle was a portable structure. The word meaning the word meeting is a translation of the Hebrew word moed, which can also be translated as appointment or appointed times. The tabernacle slash temple was the appointed place of worship and the appointed place for meeting with God at his appointed times. Without the tabernacle or the temple, we use today's synagogues as that place until the return of the third temple in Jerusalem. It's a home. Exodus 25.8. Why did God choose to dwell in the tabernacle? He desired to dwell with his people. The word tabernacle is translated from the Hebrew word mishkan, a word that means dwelling place. The tabernacle had all the features of a home. It had a table for food, lights for illumination, coverings for privacy, and an inner and outer chamber. Exodus 25.9, God is in the details. The Torah spares no words in offering a detailed description of the tabernacle. God explained the details of the making of the tabernacle down to the very last hood and stitch. The Torah's descriptions of the tabernacle attempt to paint a picture in words. The tabernacle is a work of art. To an artist, every element has significance. The little sanctuary, it is difficult to explain the awesome splendor of the tabernacle of the Lord, especially since we don't have one to actually see. These, these rendi renditions are what uh, those pictures of words has given us today because we really don't have a picture of the tabernacle. We're recreating it. The tabernacle was unlike anything we've experienced in today's world. It was not simply a big church or synagogue in the wilderness. It was the dwelling place of God on earth. It housed his dwelling presence. A person who wanted to visit God 
could simply go to the tabernacle. The synagogue is modeled after the tabernacle in that prayer services remember daily sacrifices that took place in the tabernacle. A synagogue has an ark, as we have here, that symbolically corresponds to the Holy of Holies. What do you think of this statement? Similarly, churches are descendants of synagogues, and they retain many elements of the synagogue services. I remember one time when I took a class with a pastor um, in a Christian church that I used to belong to. The pastor asked me, what in our church reminds you of the tabernacle? And I looked around, and I said, nothing. There was nothing. There was no ark. It, was, it, was, it, it had nothing that the, that, um, that, the tabernacle, um, that the tabernacle would have had. But when you come into a synagogue, that's what we're trying to recreate. A tent is only a temporary dwelling. In the days of King Solomon, the tabernacle was recreated as a solid structure in the city of Jerusalem. The tabernacle became the temple. But even the stone temple was temporary. Solomon's temples were destroyed by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt, and then that second temple was destroyed by the Romans. One of the main fixtures of the uh, tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, isn't this one a little different? This is um, done by the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. I struggle sometimes with that word cherubim. Did I do that okay? Cherubim. Look, look at them, how their, their, their bodies are kind of bent toward one another and their wings are touching. It's always a, a male and a female angel that's guarding that, um, that the contents of the ark. The ark should be thought of as the throne of God within the tabernacle. As such, it provides a focal point for worship, but the object itself is not worshiped. Instead, the one who sits upon it is to be worshiped. The central figure of the tabernacle is the ark, or was the ark, which housed the tablets of the law. This is easily understood because of the expression of Rabbi Sadath Gaon, Israel is a nation only by virtue of the Torah. The focus of the ark is even sharper in the light of Rambam's thesis that the entire tabernacle was a symbolic representation of Mount Sinai. The ark contained the Ten Commandments naturally assumed prime importance. Rabbi Baca writes that the very name of the ark, the Hebrew word for ark is aron, derives from the Hebrew word orah, which is light. For the Torah is the light of the world. Just as we refer to Yeshua as the living Torah and the light of the world. Logically, the ark should not have been built until there was a structure in which to house it. In this chapter, because Moses was speaking first of the ark, Moses was speaking not as an architect, but as a teacher of values. He spoke first about the ark because the word of God is infinitely more important than the building where it is stored. The tablets are the reason for the building, not vice versa. In Exodus 25:11, just as the ark was God's throne in the tabernacle, we need to make our hearts 
a suitable throne for him in our lives. In Hebrew thought, the heart is not regarded as the seat of the emotions. Instead, it represents a person's thoughts, intellect, and will. The Hebrew Bible uses the word heart the way the English word mind is used. The ark was a wooden chest constructed of resinous acacia wood. The wood was overlaid with pure gold inside and outside. The gold on the inside teaches us an important lesson about integrity. To be a suitable vessel for God's service, it is not sufficient for a person to merely look godly on the outside. Though the exterior appearance is important, the interior is equally or maybe even more important. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word actor. A hypocrite is someone who acts like a righteous person but is not. God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jeremiah 31:33. I will place my Torah upon your heart. The concept of placing the Torah in our hearts is illustrated by the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was made to house the two tablets of the Covenant of God. God wants our hearts to house his Torah. In the synagogues today, the Torah scroll is kept inside this chest behind me called the Ark. However, a synagogue Ark should not be confused with the Ark of the Covenant. The synagogue Ark is not meant to be a replacement for the tabernacle's Ark, nor is it to be revered as such. There is only one Ark of the Covenant, and it has been lost since the days of Jeremiah the prophet, and I would not be a bit surprised to see it return with our Messiah. Exodus 25, 17-22. Sopherno writes at length about the symbolism of the ark cover and the cherubim, cherubim sorry, which are hammered from the same gold. The cover was made of solid gold to represent the human soul, which is the image of God. Although it was made to cover the ark, the cover was a separate unit. Just as the heavenly should detach from the body, with which it is united. The cover, cover had the cherubim upon it, and the images of the cherubim were a recurring theme in the tabernacle. They were woven into the curtains that faced the most holy, and on the curtains that were attached together to form the ceiling of the tabernacle. The cherubim were reminiscent of the angels whom Isaiah and Ezekiel saw in their vision of the heavenly court. All these curtains were connected to teach that the great men of Israel should unite themselves with the rest of the nation in service of God. Here's another picture of the arcs. This is kind of a little bit more um, traditional where the wings are, are shooting out toward each other instead of the, the, the one that the um, Temple uh, Institute had, had uh, made. The cherubim had faces of a male and a female child and wings of birds. Their wings stretched upward to teach that man must aspire to raise himself upward to understand God's wisdom and excel in his service. Their faces were directed toward the ark and also toward each other to symbolize that the only true source of wisdom is the Torah and that man must use his wisdom to interact with his fellows. Do 
the holy table next. The table was placed at the north wall of the tabernacle's outer chamber. It had 12 specially baked loaves of showbread on it at all times. In two columns were six loaves each. They were baked on Friday and put on the table on Sabbath when the old loaves were removed and divided among the Kohanim. The bread is described at length in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. Like the ark, the table had a crown, that this one symbolizing the crown of kingship. This was in the uh, Talmud. Just as it is the king's responsibility to ensure the safety and prosperity of his country, the Jewish people would enjoy prosperity because of the merit of the table. The table is referred to as the table of Lakim Ha Panim, which is the bread of the face. In its content, con in this context, the word panic face should be read as the equivalent word of the English word presence. The Torah refers to the area inside the sanctuary in front of the Holy of Holies as the face of the Lord or the presence of the Lord. The 12 lo loaves were called the bread of the presence because they remain continually in the presence of God. You shall set the bread of, bread of the presence on the table before me at all times, the Lord said in Exodus 25:30. The commandment to place the bread of the presence before him applies only to the priest, and it is incumbent upon only Jerusalem in the temple or the tabernacle. The 12 loaves symbolize the 12 tribes. The priest baked the 12 loaves fresh every Sabbath and placed them before the Lord. Now they say that it was supposed to be there continually. So the picture, I guess it's to y'all's top left, where you see the priest on the one side and the priest bringing the bread on the other, supposedly they'd be sliding the one bread out as they were putting the other one in so they were always there. They never, never had them empty. The laws of the bread of presence are explained, like I said, in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. The bread was to be left continually in the presence of the Lord, hence his name, bread of the presence. So let's go back to the menorah. A house needs a lamp. The Lord commanded the Israelites to construct a solid gold lampstand holding seven oil lamps. The Hebrew word for lampstand is menorah. The menorah was to have three branches on each side of a central lampstand. The branches were to be shaped like almond blossoms, bulbs, and flowers. The menorah provided continual illumination in the tabernacle. The seven-branch menorah is never employed in synagogues or in Jewish homes as an actual lampstand today. It is depicted in various artistic representations like coins and paintings, um, ceramic renditions, whatever, but it's never to be used, never to be burned, because it was only to be done in the tabernacle or the temple, and we, we have neither today. The entire menorah had to be hammered from the same mass of gold. Nothing could be made separately and then attached. The seven-branch menorah, a universal icon of Israel and Judaism, is heavily laden with symbolic interpretations. Judaism and Christianity both generously supply explanations of all these symbolic meanings. In practical terms, the seven-branch menorah served as the only source of illumination in the tabernacle, standing opposite of the bread of presence, the table of the bread of presence, just in front of the Holy of Holies. The, the menorah 
burned in the presence, or the panim, the face of God. In that sense, the light of the menorah was lit, was the light of the face. The seven-branch menorah is never, like I said, or never employed in uh, synagogues. The one menorah that is, is a Hanukkah menorah. It doesn't represent the same menorah. Hanukkah menorah is a nine-branch um, menorah, and it's, um, it's specifically for the, the celebration of Hanukkah. The menorah had to be hammered out of one solid piece of gold, and this symbolizes the indivisibility of the Torah. A godly life must be constructed entirely from one set of values. It may not be a hodgepodge or separate bits and pieces grafted together to suit anyone's convenience. All areas of life must derive from the same set of values. Then we have the tabernacle covers. The tabernacle had three or four covers, based on your interpretation. One, one on top of the other, two made of fabric, and the other of animal hide. They were known as the tabernacle's tent or cover. It is noteworthy that one rested immediately atop the structure's airspace was simply called the Mishkan or tabernacle, implying that the cover represented the function of the entire structure of the same name, because we call the whole thing the tabernacle. By covering the walls and the airspace of the building, this cover unified everything that was inside the tabernacle, meaning that the ark, the table, the menorah, and the golden altar were not unrelated vessels. Each performed its own separate task, but they were all parts of a united whole. Indeed, this represents the Torah's philosophy of a godly life. Learning, ritual, business, and so on do not spin in separate orbits but they all work together. All parts of your life work together toward one spiritual goal. Then we have the, um, the, alt, the bronze altar. Outside the tabernacle stood the bronze altar on which the priesthood was to apply the blood of the sacrifices and, the burnt, and burnt offerings before the Lord. It was constructed of acacia wood, but unlike the other furnishings of the tabernacle, it was overlaid with bronze instead of gold. It's associated with it's, its associated utensils, forks, fire pans, shovels, and basins were all bronze as well. The altar was made hollow so as to be light enough to be transported. And like the other for, or furnishings, it was constructed with rings through which poles could be inserted for carrying. People in the Near East considered an altar as a touching point between the realm of the divine and the realm of the mortal. That which went into the altar went to the deity of the altar. An altar sanctified anything that touched it. The temple of the Lord had two altars, the altar of the burnt offering and the altar of incense, which was right inside the whole, uh, just outside the Holy of Holies. The copper altar stood in the courtyard outside the sanctuary, the golden altar inside the sanctuary in the Holy of Holies. The Torah refers to the copper altar as the altar of burnt offerings because the priests burned fire offerings on it. They also splashed the blood of the animal sacrifices against the sides of the copper altar. The blood applied to the altar provided atonement, for it is the blood 
by reason of that life that makes atonement. Notice the horns. Each, all, all of those different altars have horns on them. According to Jewish tradition, the column of smoke that rose from the altar rose straight to heaven. Miraculously, even the wind could not disturb it. No rain ever quenched the fire on the wood pile of the altar, and neither did the wind overcome the column of smoke that rose from it. The fiery altar can be compared to the base of Mount Sinai. The assembly of Israel gathered around the altar to celebrate and worship. The common Israelite could not approach the sanctuary beyond the altar of burnt offering. Only the Levites and the priests could go beyond the altar and enter the sanctuary. You'll never find an altar in a synagogue. Sacrifices can only be done in the temple. And then we have the courtyard. The outer court, as Rabbi calls it. The courtyard was made of linen garments that were suspended from rods attached to wooden pillars. One pillar for every five cubits of curtain. The courtyard's dimensions were 100 cubits along the north and south walls and 50 cubits along the east and the west. The entrance to the courtyard was on the east. Unlike the commonly used secular system that uses north as the primary point of reference so that all maps have a north on the top, the Torah system assigns this role to the east. East is primary because it is, the, it is natural for people to look toward the sun which rises in the east, and for this reason, east is nicknamed Kadim, which is forward. The assembly of Israel gathered before the altar in the courtyard to participate in the worship, the prayers, the songs, the psalms, and the sacred assemblies. They brought their animals for sacrifice into the courtyard, and the priests conducted the sacrificial services in the courtyard. The Israelites that gathered in the courtyard were able to participate in the worship services and observe the priests and the Levites as they were performing their duties. So this is all the different types of animals that could be sacrificed, but um, it's a good representation. The word korban is translated as sacrifice, the Hebrew word korban. It occurs 80 times in the Hebrew Bible primarily in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. The sacrificial system symbolizes self-surrender and devotion to the will of God. The sacrifice, actually took place, took, the sacrifice itself actually took the place and represented the person that was presenting the korban. There are many types of sacrifices for different situations but not all were utilized in the temple to draw nearer to the, but all of them were used, utilized in the temple to draw nearer to the creator. The commandment to build the tabernacle is about making heaven on earth. Jewish tradition says that when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and disappeared into the thick dark cloud, he actually entered into the heavenly realms because of the supernal realm had bent low to rest upon Mount Sinai. Moses found himself standing in the heavenly court of God's throne. He beheld angels, and he saw the eternal Mishkan, the dwelling place of the Almighty, the place where God dwells. The Lord said to him, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and the pattern of all its furniture, 
just just so you shall construct it. You shall construct it just as I show you. Jewish tradition explains that the pattern Moses saw on the mountain was heavenly, was the heavenly external dwelling place of God, because the Mishkan on earth is a reflection of the Lord's heavenly Mishkan. Every detail of his plan reflects an aspect of the Lord's dwelling place. This is why we hold it so dear. As God described each article of the tabernacle to Moses, he showed Moses the real one in heaven. This is from the Talmud. He was to build every furnishing of the sanctuary, even the, even the tabernacle itself, as an earthly counterpart, a replica, after the pattern of the authentic one that he saw in heaven. The Almighty wanted his dwelling place on earth patterned after his dwelling place in heaven. The tabernacle created a reflection of the spiritual heavenly dwelling place of God. The festival of Sukkot illustrates this concept. During the festival, the Torah commands the Jewish people to leave their homes and spend seven days in a temporary shelter, camping out in booths as a remembrance of the wilderness experience. The booth is not our permanent dwelling. It is only a temporary structure, just as the Israelites lived in temporary shelters in the wilderness. The Almighty camped alongside them in his own temporary shelter, his earthly tent among the people, which was the tabernacle. Perhaps this explains why King Solomon chose to dedicate the temple during the festival of Sukkot. The Mishkan teaches us that the Lord wants to dwell among his people. God's dwelling place among men paints a picture of his desire to reach out toward man. We learn from this that he desires fellowship and communion with his creatures. He's not con content to merely peer down from us at heaven. He desires interaction with us and wants to engage in a living relationship with his covenant people. The Mikdash teaches us of the complexities of a relationship between man and God. The relationship cannot be a casual one, as a casual one is between two peers. God is holy, and that means there are limits to this interaction. For the Holy One to dwell among human beings, accommodations have to be made. Entering the presence of God is no small thing. Both of these lessons are pertinent to the mystery surrounding the incarnation of the divine word in the person of our Yeshua. This explains why he compared his body to the temple. His physical body served as the living dwelling place filled with the dwelling presence of God. His human body is like a tent, a tabernacle that God pitched for a time among man so that the divine word could inhabit him. The dwelling place of God could not just be any man. He needed a mikdash, a holy place. Our righteous Messiah became the sanctuary of God on earth. As the body of Messiah, the disciples of Yeshua physically represent him on earth until he returns. Believers are the holy place because he sanctifies us. We are God's dwelling place and that he has placed his anointing spirit among us and declared us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. We wait for his return when he will claim us like a bridegroom, claiming his bride, and bring us into Messianic Jerusalem. In the half Torah portion of the Teremah, of the, uh, this week's Torah portion, Teremah, we read in the book of Kings of Solomon's construction 
of the temple in Jerusalem. It would be known as Solomon's temple in honor of us being the one who commissioned, in honor of him being the one who commissioned and oversaw the construction. God had ordained him to be the one to have this honor. The last part of the partial reads, or the Haftorah, uh, the word of Hashem came to Solomon, saying, This temple that you build, if you follow my decrees, perform my statutes, and observe all my commandments to follow them, I shall uphold my word with you that I spoke to David your father. I shall dwell among the children of Israel, and I shall not forsake my people Israel. That's in 1 Kings 6, 11 through 13. There's a condition there that he's telling them that they have to obey his commandments to keep those, those blessings and to keep that temple. As the construction of the temple buildings came to a conclusion, a prophet came to Solomon with a word from the Lord. The Lord expressed his approval of the temple and he promised Solomon that as long as he walked faithfully in the obedience to the Torah, he would dwell among Israel and not forsake the people. The promise also had that warning. If the Davidic king turned away from the Torah and no longer walked in obedience of God's commandments, the Lord would turn away from both his temple and the people of Israel. We may deduce a simple equation from the prophecy of 1 Kings 6, 12 through 13. When a godly Torah-observant Davidic king rules over Israel, then the Lord bestows the blessings he promised David. He dwells in the midst of the people, and he does not forsake them. In the absence of a godly, Torah-observant Davidic, Davidic king, the Lord removes his presence from his temple, and the people of Israel suffer exile. To remedy the suffering of Israel and the absence of God's dwelling presence in Jerusalem, we only need a Davidic king who will prove faithful to walk in God's statutes, execute his ordinances, and keep all of his commandments. Such a king will rebuild God's house and God's dwelling place back to the temple. He'll bring God's dwelling place back to the temple. Such a king will gather all the exiles of Israel. Yeshua of Nazareth is the only candidate who can accomplish these things in their fullness because he alone is without iniquity. A sinless son of David, the living Torah. He is the only candidate who can guarantee those blessings permanently because he lives forever. He will never die and leave his throne to another Davidic king who might wander from the Lord, as happened in the books of King, Book of Kings so many times. Only Yeshua can bring the promises of God to David to completion. In um, Exodus, not Exodus, but in uh, Revelation, it quotes, I quote this. Also I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See, God Shekinah is with mankind, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and he himself, God, with them, will be their God. Revelation 12, 2 through 21, I'm sorry, 21, 2 through 3, and that was quoting Leviticus 26, 11. 
Um, I do have a couple other things here. This is um, Herod's temple, that uh, the second temple that Yeshua would have been um, um, that would have been in around when, when Yeshua was alive, and this is where the apostles would have gathered after he had died for the you know for the rest of their lives actually, because this wasn't destroyed until 70 CE. Um, it, it was a huge place. Now. Uh, the way that's, that's rendered, if you look at it, in the bottom right-hand corner is the north, and the south is the top left-hand corner. The east is that golden gate. I don't know if you can, can uh, read that, but that's the golden gate. So that, that's facing east. This is a rendition of the same temple. L looks a little differently. But um, in the top right, you can see where it says Solomon's Porch or Solomon's colonnades, that, that would have been called. That is where the disciples gathered after Yeshua had ascended into heaven. And they would go there daily. They lived in Jerusalem after he had uh, ascended. They never left the temple. They were always there at the temple. That's, they, they, they were all from Galilee. You know, the disciples or the apostles were all from Galilee. Well, Galilee is a good ways from Jerusalem. You can't commute. So they had to move there. And that's why they formed their commune, their, their, what you'd call in, in um, Judaism a kibbutz, so that they could um, survive and stay there. And they grew to the thousands, and they would meet there in Solomon's Colonnade. And the reason they met in Solomon's Colonnade, if you notice, it's on the east. When Yeshua returns, he's going to return from the east. They wanted to be the first to greet him. So each day they would pray there. And there's three prayer times each day in, Ju in Judaism, even today. And those morning, afternoon, and evening prayers, they would be there for those prayers, representing the, um, the Messiah, basically. Um, this is a rendition that kind of shows you the difference in Solomon's temple versus Herod's temple, versus the second temple. Look how much bigger Herod's temple was. And Solomon's temple was much bigger than the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was very small. So that shows you a little bit about, um, um, gives you a little bit of a, of a scale of, of, of what they look like. So we have this vision of the third temple. And this third temple is going to be ushered in by our Messiah. And I think that's a, a good relevance for our les lesson today is it's a, it's a great uh, um, Torah portion as all Torah portions are it, it gives us a lot of details of the tabernacle as the rest of the book of Exodus will get will give us and uh, there's application for that for us to understand what it is the Messiah is going to be bringing back to us and what we're going to be enjoying so let's um, let's close with a prayer Avinu Shabashimayim our father in heaven Father, thank you for this glorious day that you've given us today and for the blessings that you've bestowed upon us to bring us here safely. Father, I pray that the rest of our day will honor you in everything that we do, that we will draw nearer to you and sincerely reach you with our prayers today. Father, I pray that each of us, as we leave this place today, will show you and us in all that we do. 
In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.